0: Travels across the globe, sees many different facets of how God is working in our world. And so we're always encouraged by that. So, Brother Ken, would like you to come.
1: Well, it's great to be back and see some old friends and some new friends. I haven't met Ruby before. But like her, I came here because I was asked. (laughs) And uh, the people who asked me aren't here anymore. (laughs) But uh, it goes back a long way. And I know some of you pray for me regularly and for Eva too, and we appreciate that very much. We're uh, in the front lines a lot of the time. And I usually try and share something with you that would encourage you from uh, the the intervening years since I was last here. So these are two little stories that go together. The first one is about the island of Mauritius, and it's off the east coast of Africa, and I have a peculiar friend there called Paul. (coughs) Most of my friends are peculiar because that's why they like me. and uh, paul and i and eva were all in college together in scotland in the early 60s and paul was always banging on about mauritius and how god wanted him in mauritius and he didn't know anybody that was working there no societies or anything so he actually just went and we didn't really keep in touch except each of us would supply about two lines of information in an annual college newsletter and that's how I knew he was in Mauritius and uh, I kept getting a little niggle from the Holy Spirit that I ought to communicate with him so I finally did uh, about uh, 2014 <laughs> and, uh, and uh, told him we were on our way to Africa later that year and we could go by Mauritius. And he wanted us to. When Paul got to Mauritius, uh, he found that there were quite a lot of disabled people and nothing was being done for them. So he he started a tiny factory employing two of them, printing T-shirts. And uh, he... Encouraged everybody on the island to buy the t shirts and there weren 't enough people on the island to keep them busy, so he had to go overseas and open some more markets and Then he employed some more people and then he started a bit another business and, and that meant more markets and When he went overseas, he would take a couple of disabled boys with him to expose them to different cultures and In the end, he had six businesses employing 400 plus disabled people which was the entire disabled population of the island and then one time he was away developing a market and he'd got a partner in to run the business when he wasn't there and the partner really needed some new employees so he employed a couple of fit people and when Paul got back, he didn't like that, so he said, you take over the whole show, I'll move to another island and start again. So he did. And uh, now he has a couple of businesses running there, plus a school for disabled children, because there was no school for them. And it was our privilege to work with them. Uh, he knows every church in the country, and it's not that many, <laughs> and, uh, opened doors for me to speak there and also in the school for the disabled kids. And we had a good time. And, uh, of course, he's got a lot older since 1964 when I last saw him in college. and I'm just the same as I was back then. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's one bit of the story. But uh, I was also last year in uh, Ukraine. And in the city of Odessa, where I'd never been before, apart from the airport, with was a pastor I'd never met before called Fedor. And Fedor had a heart for homeless people. And homeless in Ukraine is not the same as homeless in California. <clears throat> there are no missions working to help out disabled people. The Salvation Army don't have hostels there. There aren't rescue missions and that kind of thing. And it can get to minus 40 in the winter. (coughs) So being homeless is not a choice. It's not fun. Uh, But there's a lot of them (coughs) because the economy is terrible. Uh, And Fedor has a heart for them, and he has eight full-time people on his church staff, all former homeless people. He has a heart for the whole country, and he's trying to make connections in every town and city so there will be a church that will reach out to these people. And he'd organized a a Bible school for five days in which I was to teach, and he had 35 pastors and Christian leaders in that school. And after the first morning, uh, we went to a restaurant for lunch, and we passed a homeless man on the street And this man had a puppet and he was trying to use the puppet to stop people going past and get some money out of them. But he was very drunk, extremely smelly (coughs) and uh, obviously very poor. And Fedor, being Fedor, had to stop and talk to him. And he didn't appear to be getting very far and time was going on and uh, there were two other people in the party, Fedor's wife and my translator, and the three of us were watching this conversation that didn't seem to be going anywhere. So I asked my translator, how do you say Jesus loves you in Russian? And having been informed of that, I went over to the guy, grabbed the puppet off him, and the puppet said to him right in his face, Jesus loves you. (laughs) And I gave it back to him. And that changed the conversation and Fedor actually led him to Christ there on the street. But there was another little bit in there. As I gave the puppet back, I saw a little label that said Made in Mauritius. Now, (laughs) hey, there's only one factory that makes puppets in Mauritius and I know who owns it. (coughs) And uh, so I was able to throw that into the mix. And that really caught the guy's attention, helped Fedor lead him to Christ. But of course, we all have a big question mark about drunks <laughs> who pray <laughs> and promise you the moon. But Fedor said, if you are serious that you want a new life, then you come at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning to the office in the church. There's a room with three beds in it. Two are occupied by other men. You can have the third one. We'll put you on a program Which will help you get off your habits and also equip you to become a Christian leader. So, this guy is in that program now. (laughs) And uh, when I got home just after that, there was a newsletter, email newsletter from Paul, in which he lamented the fact that God didn't seem to be using him very much. So I was able to send him an email and say, "Well, let me tell you what one of your puppets is doing." <laughs> uh, so God is just so great; it's so good to serve Him. Thank you, guys, for helping us do that. Uh, without you and people like you, we couldn't do it. You know, it's it's just not possible. Eva is going to come staggering up here, <laughs> and she's going to read the scripture from Genesis through. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. C.S. Lewis was one of the uh, livelier intellects of last century, unlike me. <laughs> and uh, uh, he wrote a number of books, one of which is called Screwtape Letters, and it's all about Satan. And uh, one of his lines in that book is this: one of Satan's masterpieces is to plant into our minds the picture of a comical little figure, all in red with two horns and a spiky tail, scurrying about prodding people with a toasting fork. And the picture is so ridiculous we all have a chuckle and forget about his reality, and he is left free to continue his work unopposed. Uh, So, with that thought in mind, I am giving the title to this morning's talk, because I have to give a title because they want one over there. (laughs) And it's called uh, Know Your Enemy. And it's interesting to see the times in which Satan is specifically mentioned. And of course, this time that we've just read about is right after creation. As soon as God has created man, Satan is there attacking man. And he's not quit. Why does Satan attack man? He's not particularly interested in us as people. But he hates our God. And he sees us just as pawns to get at God and it's warfare but he doesn't announce that he just comes and usually he appears as though he has our interests at heart and he's an old friend you know Uh, and he's um, his primary intention is to warp our picture of God When I was 17, which you younger people will appreciate is about 200 years ago. (coughs) When I was 17, I had a friend at school called Graham who had never had a girlfriend or even one date. (coughs) And he thought it was a terribly serious problem to have. (coughs) And he came to see me to see if I couldn't organize a date for him. And I said, well, Graham, I don't know. These things aren't all that easy to arrange, but I'll I'll try. And when I thought about it, I remembered Pam. Pam being a stunningly attractive girl who had had a boyfriend for the past six months called Brian. And they just had a huge fight, and they weren't speaking to each other, and they were both miserable. So I went to Pam's home and invited her to come with me down to the fairground. And she came along. And uh, on the way down, I said, uh, you know Graham, don't you? And she said, Graham? Yeah. What about Graham? Well, do you know he's never had a date? No, she said, I'm sure he hasn't. And I said, I think I know what you're telling me. (laughs) You think he's weird, don't you? He is weird. (laughs) No, he's not. He's shy. And he's so shy that when he meets somebody, especially somebody like you, he behaves as though he's weird. But if you could get to know him underneath all that, he's really a nice guy. Is he? She said. Yeah. And what has that got to do with me? Well, Pam, think about it. Just suppose you had a date with Graham, just one. You don't tell anybody, he doesn't tell anybody, you don't see anybody you know, nevertheless, Brian learns about it by some amazing stretch of coincidence, like I tell him. (laughs) He might think he's going to lose you forever and that would make him come around and apologize and start things up again. And she said, hey, that could work. Let's try that. (laughs) So now we got down to the fairground and we rolled the roller coasters and the whirly gigs and all the other crazy machines designed to make you sick while getting money out of you. And then we found some of these mirrors with kind of wriggly glass in them. You know the kind. They make you look peculiar, don't they? Unless you look peculiar to begin with. Then you might find one that would be helpful to you. <laughs> Pam was kind enough to stand beside the mirror and I took a photograph through the mirror. Took her home again. Telephoned Graham. You have a date. Who will? Nobody you know. Name's Pam. Pam. She's going to be on the steps of the town hall at 7.30, Saturday evening. What's she like? Just be there. (laughs) Took the film out of the camera, developed it. You had to do that in those days. It was brilliant. She had one eye up here, one eye down here, and (laughs) kind of weird lumps everywhere. (laughs) And I trimmed the frame of the mirror and everything outside it. So what was left looked like a genuine photograph of a most unusual-looking person. And I went round to Graham's home, six thirty Saturday evening. It was back in the days of John Travolta and grease, if you remember that, when guys used to slick their hair down with some kind of white axle grease, sold under the trade name of Brill cream, You know, see. Ken and I both suffer from the consequences of that. <coughs> and he even brushed his teeth, which made an amazing difference to him. They were now white. We always thought he had green teeth to let. <coughs> when he was all ready to go, I said, Graham, you want to be able to recognize it?" Yes, he said, what does she look like? And I said, well, I've got a photograph if you'd like to see it. And he wanted it, so I gave it to him. <clears throat> and he took it and looked at it, tried it the other way up. <laughs> and then he went kind of pink and angry. He said, what is that? That's a Martian. I asked you for a girl. <laughs> Listen, Graham, I said. Beggars cannot choose. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe is busy this evening. <laughs> this girl is not. She may look odd to you, but she's got a lot of friends and they all know she's expecting to have a date with you tonight. So if you're not there or if you don't treat her really well, they will all be looking for you on Monday. (laughs) So he decided to keep this appointment after all. He arrived at 7.25 on the steps of the town hall, pacing up and down, nervous, checking his watch, looking rather half-heartedly, for an approaching creature from Mars amongst the passing crowds. Pam was on the opposite side of the road watching him, highly amused. (laughs) 7.30 came, no Martians. 7.35, the creature from outer space had not arrived. He was going home. So he set off down the steps to go home. Pam came across the road and met him at the bottom of the steps, smiled nicely at him and said, Hello, Graham, I'm Pam. And she really was very attractive. And Graham's eyes opened, and his mouth fell open. Good thing he had brushed his teeth. And (coughs) finally he said, But (laughs) you can't be. And she said, Really, why? Well, um, you're nice, Well, of course I am. What did you expect? (laughs) And as he was trying to talk himself out of this one, she suddenly started laughing. She said, Ken didn't give you a photograph, did he? And he said, oh, man, did he... I'm going to kill that guy. (laughs) And I'm telling you this, rubbish. (laughs) Because it's what you came to... No. (laughs) No. Because there's somebody extremely clever in the business of giving to you. Not a photograph, but a very ugly, distorted mental picture of the most important person in your whole existence, the God who made you. And if we are deceived by this and we accept this unworthy picture, then we'll distance ourselves from him, maybe even pretend he doesn't exist. So, how does he do that? Well, he approached Eve. What was Eve's situation? Idyllic. In the wonderful garden with a perfect climate, trees producing fruit every month, all kinds of different kinds. Uh, Beautiful, unspoiled relationship, unembarrassed with a husband, <coughs> total freedom, enough work to give life a bit of shape but not enough to make it burdensome. Idyllic. And Satan approaches, speaking through one of the more impressive creatures at the time. Appearing like a friend deceptively humble. Has God said you may not eat from any of the trees in the garden? As though he wants to be informed and he thinks Eve can tell him. And Eve, of course, is in a superior position so she needs to instruct this creature who hasn't got it quite right. No, God didn't say that. But he did say there's one tree and we shouldn't eat that fruit or even touch it or we will die. And he has already begun to warp her concept of God because the suggestion behind it is there is something you are missing. Something God is not giving you. And obviously he doesn't really love you or he would give it to you, wouldn't he? So either he doesn't really love you or he doesn't really understand you or (laughs) he's just manipulating you. But already Eve has swallowed that concept. I'm missing something. And Satan has not told her what she's missing. Eve jumps to that conclusion. There's one tree. Satan didn't mention the one tree. Eve mentions it. And now she is focused on one tree. And suddenly that one tree takes on an importance It couldn't possibly have. But she's focused on it. And Satan has only three lines of approach. They're detailed for us by the Apostle John in his first letter, which in the older version is called The Lust of the Flesh, the Lust of the Eyes, and the Pride of Life. Lust of the flesh is simply your body's desires put above any other consideration. Lust of the eyes is a desire to possess put above any other consideration. Pride of life, who are you? Who do people think you are? Who do you think you are? Put above other considerations. So as she looks at the fruit, we're told it looked really beautiful. And you think, what's the matter with this woman? There's 10,000 trees out there. They're all beautiful. She has unlimited access to all of them. What's that special about this one? But she's focused on it. And Satan will always try to make you focus on something that you don't have. And it doesn't matter what it is. It'll become terribly important. (laughs) If you're single he might make you focus on that. You've got to be married. (laughs) If you're married, you've lost your freedom, haven't you? (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice to have your freedom back again? If you're in work, wouldn't it be nice to have a vacation and not have to go to work tomorrow? If you're out of work, (laughs) wouldn't it be good to have a job? You know, and whatever your situation, he will make you focus on something you don't have. And working on you gives the impression that God is kind of ugly because if he was really such a loving God, you wouldn't be liking anything, would you? Desire for possession, but then the desire to eat it. Because as she looks at the fruit, it's not just beautiful. It's very appetizing. And suddenly she is desperately hungry. (coughs) And how long is it since she ate? Maybe an hour. (laughs) The woman's not starving to death not starving at all. She's not deprived at all. But this is, just looks so appetizing. She has gotta have it. Have you heard those words anyway? Gotta have it. (coughs) So if you have gotta have it, what about that? Just do it. Oh, that might be familiar as well. (coughs) And while she's not in need this one fruit has taken on such a disproportionate value she has to possess it and she has to experience it so these are two lines in which Satan will approach you this thing looks so beautiful Gotta have it. Whole advertising industry is based on that, isn't it? Something you don't have, you gotta have it though. Whoa. You didn't know you got to have it until you saw the ad. <laughs> right? You didn't even know it existed until you saw the ad. And now you've got to have it. <clears throat> and of course your body makes demands, doesn't it? No. <laughs> What kind of demands? I'm hungry, feed me. I'm thirsty, I need a drink. Oh, I'm tired, I want to lie down. I'm too hot, oh, I'm too cold. <coughs> and your body's always making demands, miseducated, and it will make other demands, like I need drugs, etc. I need sex. Yeah. <laughs> Your body's always making demands, isn't it? The third line she looks at the fruit, it's desirable that she will become wise. And oh, will want to be thought of as being wise, don't we? <laughs> Uh, Education is so highly prized, and of course education is better than ignorance, (laughs) but it's not really worth what it's made out to be worth. People are still people and still valuable and equally valuable if they've never been to school. That's what the video was about, isn't it? But she wants to be wise. And there's a lie behind that. And this is the big lie. See, you will be like God's knowing good and evil. You will be able to decide what's right and wrong. You won't need anybody else to tell you. You'll have come of age. You'll be free. You'll make your own decisions. You won't just be some little yes person having to do what God says. Because you can be a human being without God. (laughs) Anybody believe that today? Anybody in your country believe that today? You can be a human being without God. So why is it that human beings behave worse than animals? see a Beehive. Temperature has to remain constant to within a four-degree band or that will be the end of the hive. The eggs will die. The next generation will die. There'll be no future. There'll be no other opportunity. Four degrees. Two up, two down from the ideal. That's the end of it. Pfft. How do they maintain that? Very clever. <coughs> Evening approaches... Sun's going down, it's getting cool. Some worker bees approach the back door and the front door. And they build wax into the door until they seal it up. And it's insulated. And if it's still getting too cold, a message goes around, eat some honey. And all the bees start eating a little bit of honey. Because when you eat, your body warms up and gives off heat. And they eat exactly enough honey, (laughs) multiplied by the number of bees, to maintain the temperature, so it doesn't drop too low. And they stop, so it doesn't get too high. Very good at maths, these bees. And then morning comes... They stop eating. They dig the wax out of the front door and the back door. The breeze blows through, but the sun's getting up. It's getting hotter. Some other bees fly away and collect some water and come back and dump it on the floor of the hive in the airflow between the two doors. And they calculate exactly how much water they're supposed to bring because they're really good at math. And then two other little squads of bees gather, one facing outwards and one facing inwards, and they stand there and fan. And they blow air through the hive over the water, which forces it to evaporate, which takes heat out of the hive, and that's the way your air conditioner works. And they calculate exactly how much water, how many bees are supposed to be fanning, and how fast that clever now suppose you could talk to one of the bees standing there fanning (laughs) excuse me (laughs) what are you doing fanning what for got (laughs) to really why have you got to the eggs will die what do you care you'll die before they do <laughs> you getting paid for this why don't you go on strike there's plenty of others to do it aren't there don't do that though do they why is this bee telling you it really loves the next generation of course it isn't neither is it doing the math it's got a rigid pattern of behaviour and it's locked into it. And we call it instinct because it means we've no idea why. <laughs> Animals behave better than we do. Because man wasn't meant to live by instinct. but under the authority of God himself through the Holy Spirit. It's called the kingdom of God. And that's where Adam began, where Eve began. But they emigrated. They left the kingdom of God and joined the empire of Satan when they disobeyed at that tree they opted not to be obedient we can be people without God and that's how you were born and once they'd done that then God appeared <laughs> and what did they do? well first they'd tried to cover themselves with fig leaves <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous but it tells you how they were feeling there was no shame before. Now there is shame and there is embarrassment. God appears, what they do? They hide. Where? Behind a bush? Is that intelligent? You know, if you were going to hide from God behind a bush, which side of the bush would you pick? <laughs> I mean, it is so ridiculous. Suppose you were God. You know? <laughs> and you see these two little, little naked people <laughs> bent down in them with the bush in front of them you could have all kinds of fun couldn't you just make the bush burst into flame like the one that Moses saw you know? they didn't have a whole lot of insulation at the time or come up behind them and put a hand on each shoulder you know, excuse me Who are we hiding from? Hmm? (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? It's the bad news. You have those genes. You do. And uh, probably you don't hide from God behind a physical bush. So we invent. Intellectual bushes to hide behind. Atheism. Agnosticism. (coughs) Anything. It's just a bush. It's stupid. But you think it hides you. Doesn't. Everything is open to him. God speaks from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son in whom I am delighted. First man ever to please God since Adam fell. And Satan is listening round the corner and Jesus goes into the desert led by the Holy Spirit and driven by the Holy Spirit if you put two Gospels together in order to be tested by the devil. And the devil approaches him after he's been 40 days without food. And in an understated way, the Bible says he was afterwards hungry. (laughs) I don't know about you, it doesn't take me 40 days to get hungry. I can do it in 40 minutes if I put my mind to it. And when it says he was hungry, he wasn't peckish. He was desperate for food. So weak that he wouldn't be able to stand up. In Ireland, the IRA hunger strikers went on, on strike. Total. They wouldn't eat, wouldn't drink anything. They were fit. Military trained. First one died in 53 days. After 40 days, can't stand up. Jesus is in the desert, can't stand up, desperate for food. Nobody knows where he is. He's going to die there, can't walk out. And Satan is so sympathetic. Hey, if you're the son of God, you shouldn't be hungry, should you? Listen to your body, man. Your body's helpless, it's hopeless, it's screaming out to you, feed me, feed me. See those stones, they look a bit like loaves, don't they? Why don't you just turn them into bread and you can eat. Body will stop screaming, it'll be strengthened, you can walk out of here and continue your mission. Otherwise, it's going to end here, isn't it? (laughs) So, is it a sin to be hungry? No. Is it uh, a sin to eat? Well, the way some people do, but generally not. How about turning stones into bread if you know how to do that? It's not been a great temptation to me, I'd have to say, but if I knew how to do it, I wouldn't see anything wrong with it. So why is it a temptation? See, the temptation you only recognize when you hear Jesus' response. Man doesn't live just by bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, my responsibility as man is not to do everything my body wants, but what my father says. What you're asking me to do is exactly the same thing you asked Eve to do. Forget what God has said, just do what your body's saying. The lust of the flesh, the over-desires of the body which overrule everything else, whatever it is. So let me ask myself, and of course let me ask you, what decides your behavior? What your body wants or what your God says? Hey, Jesus, you're 30 years old. You've come to rescue the world. Nobody even knows who you are. Unless your mother still remembers. This isn't going to win anybody, is it? Man, you've got to make an impression soon. Hey, see the temple here. How tall it is see the crowds in the marketplace below why don't you just jump off and you'll be okay because here's this nice little verse God will send his angels to take care of you so you won't even bruise your toe (laughs) jump off they'll see you coming down out of the sky The crowd will see you. You'll have a platform. You can start a ministry. Be somebody. (laughs) Hey, Jesus. How long have you been wearing that old coat? Those sandals look about 10 years old. Got any money in the bank? Where do you live? What sort of transport have you got? I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth for one moment of worship. Nobody will know. We can decide it right now. And you can go from a guy who's got nothing except the meager clothes that you're wearing to a guy who owns everything in the world. What do you say? (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. Satan. See, all the temptations and the avenues that Satan used to get to Eve, he tries on Jesus. But what was successful with Eve is a total failure with Jesus. Jesus refuses to accept the distorted picture of his father. He's in a desperate situation in the desert. But he still trusts his father. He knows his father loves. He knows his father is true. He knows his father's will will be done. And as soon as this encounter is over, the angels are on their way. Maybe nobody knows where Jesus is. The father knows. And when the angels arrived, I don't think they brought stones changed into bread. Of course they didn't. They brought cake. Angel food cake, didn't they? <laughs> <coughs> and everything that Satan offered him, he was to obtain, not by accepting Satan's suggestions, but by submitting to the Father. All the kingdoms of the world, they're his, aren't they? Of course, this wasn't the final battle for Jesus, the final battle was on the cross. You know your body screams out wanting food or whatever. What do you think Jesus' body was saying when he was on the cross? Get these thorns out of me, get these nails out of me. I need to change my position. You're the son of God, come on down. Jesus totally, totally defeated the enemy. And he's come to live in you. There's a little girl, nine years old, became a Christian. Her uncle thought he was highly intelligent, he was an idiot, and an atheist. And he was one of the first people she told in her nine-year-old little girl fashion, Uncle, Uncle, I've become a Christian. Well, yes, how very nice for you. You are a Christian now. Well, how do you know, huh? How do you know you're a Christian? Oh, Uncle, it's really easy. Jesus lives in my heart. Oh, well, yes, of course, I should have expected that, shouldn't I? But tell me, how do you know that Jesus lives in your heart? Oh, Uncle, that's easy too. Before, Satan would come and he would knock on my door. And I would open the door And he wanted me to do something that I knew was naughty. And I knew it was him, and I would say, Oh, no, Satan, no, I I mustn't do that. That's really naughty. But do you know, Uncle, Satan just came in, and I did it anyway. But now, Uncle, when Satan knocks at the door, I say, Lord Jesus... There's someone at the door. I'm busy right now, but since you live here, would you mind answering the door for me? And do you know, uncle, when Jesus answers the door, Satan never gets in. That's a nine-year-old theology. He is a 90-year-old theology. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Jesus who triumphed over every fashion of temptation at far greater measures than you will ever experience is in you to be your victory. We are more than conquerors through Him. Amen? Okay.
0: Thank you Ken. Uh appreciate that uh, those insights on knowing our enemy. It's good to know that uh Christ has defeated our enemy and uh that we can live victorious lives in him as a result of his work on the cross and so let's uh, stand and we'll close our time together. Today we have some food over in the fellowship hall afterwards and uh let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, have a uh, song together. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for using Ken here this morning to um, bring to bear uh, the truth of who our enemy is and the victorious nature uh, that that uh, we have in Christ. And, Lord, we no longer have to uh, listen to those temptations and yield to those But now through the power of Christ, through the power of the Spirit that dwells within us, that we can uh, literally rise above that. And uh, we don't always do it, unfortunately. But even when we fail, Lord, uh, you've offered us forgiveness when we repent and turn to you. And so we pray for hearts here today and the truth that they heard. And I pray that you would just minister to each one. Lord, I pray that if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that you would uh, cry out to them and just uh, woo their hearts, uh, draw them to yourself. And I pray that they would come to a point in time where they would recognize their sinfulness before a holy God and their need of a savior, and that they could cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the goodness and the grace that you provided for us through Christ. And we pray now that you would bless our time of fellowship over in the fellowship hall, bless the food to our bodies, and uh, just give us a good a good weekend together we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name